I will say this, having been in the enterprise software space for, for literally 40 years, and people laugh at me, but it's true. This is the hardest technical problem I've ever tackled because it's very unstructured. 90% of our cycles are on the golf problem as opposed to, well, how do we print PDFs? How do we handle support tickets and stuff like that? It makes a huge difference. You can be incredibly productive. And in our particular business, our secret sauce is the domain expertise we have in golf. We have coincidentally 24 people are PGA golf professionals and we have 24 people who are world-class computer scientists who know golf because they've been doing it forever. You bring those together, it's very, very powerful. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thank you for joining us, and please subscribe, rate, and review the show on either iTunes or our show page at www.mod.golf, so you'll never miss the latest engaging story with my amazing guests. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Mike Zisman, who is the founder and CEO of Golf Genius Software. Golf Genius is cloud-based golf software for events, leagues, and trips, which features the most robust pairings, tournament, and live scoring in the industry. Mike founded Golf Genius in 2009 after a long career in information technology. Mike combines his love for golf and his passion for IT to help revolutionize the golf industry. I'll let Mike tell his backstory, but I do want to mention SoftSwitch, which he founded in 1979, which was one of the very first companies to participate in the electronic mail industry. And Mike is regarded as a pioneer in the field of electronic mail. All right. So I'll admit this. I just wanted to say the words electronic mail. So that's why I told that story, which I don't believe is what the kids are calling it these days. <laughs> I think they're calling it something else. Having said that, Mike, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today on the Mod Golf Podcast. Thank you, Colin. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Hey, Mike, I first have to say, 1979. So what were you, 12 years old when you founded SoftSwitch? You don't look that old. I, I wish. I wish. Yeah. Well, I'm well preserved, but I, I will be 70 years old in January, I must Wow. From what I read with your bio there, you love to play golf and throw yourself down a ski hill with your wife. That's true. Well, obviously, yeah. you do a lot of stuff to keep yourself young there, and you certainly look it. So, hey, Mike, to get us started here, can you tell our listeners about your previous entrepreneurial endeavors and connectivity to golf before starting Golf Genius in 2009? Yeah, they're actually related, Colin. As you mentioned, in 1979, I founded a company called SoftSwitch that solved a problem that doesn't exist anymore. Today, when you want to send me an email, you say Mike Zisman or MD Zisman at Gmail and off it goes. But back in the 80s, electronic mail was all proprietary. There really was no internet. Every vendor had its own email system and they couldn't communicate with each other. And so we built the backbone software that allowed a large corporation to interconnect its IBM and DEC and Wang and HP systems into one integrated email network. So it was really essential for large corporations. Uh, we were fortunate enough to be in 80 to Fortune 100 at probably 450 of the Fortune 500 and good international distribution. And it was the usual route of raising venture capital. I raised back then $20 million, which was a lot of money back then wow. through the name brand venture capitalists at the time. And it was a struggle. Like everything I like to say in software, it takes twice as long and costs three times as much, or it takes three times as long and costs twice as much and you get your choice. <laughs> yeah. And so we all find that it takes longer than we would like. But it was a very successful company. And I had played golf when I was a teenager. And uh, I'll never forget, I played at a county park. I grew up in the South Hills of Pittsburgh and played at South Park. And there was a 145-yard par three hole, sort of up on a crest. And I always parred it. 
And one day I hit the ball and I went left and I hit another ball and it went right. I hit another ball and it went left. I was 16 years old or 15 at the time. I threw down a five iron, broke it in half, walked home five miles and swore I'd never play golf again. <laughs> and I didn't until I was about 39. And my vice president of sales at Sauceswood said, hey, look, we got to start playing golf with customers. And there you go. Went out and played golf and loved it and became hooked on the game. And Softswitch was sold to Lotus Development in 1994, and Lotus was sold to IBM in 95, and I stayed until 2007 in various roles, and then founded Golf Genius in 2009. Right. So I've been an entrepreneur for, I guess, going on 40 years now, and I've had the good fortune of having served and still serving on a number of venture capital finance boards, trying to help other companies get going. Good stuff. Good stuff. So let's bring us up to speed now with Golf Genius. I do want to hear yourself being an entrepreneur for that long. I don't know if I want to call you a serial entrepreneur. Usually I don't like that term. I like the term successful entrepreneur, which you certainly are, Mike. You're that. Well, thank you. I would like to ask what your aha moment was, that epiphany for Golf Genius, based on your decades of experience yeah. in not only startups, entrepreneurship, and uh, information technology. So what pain points, gaps, and opportunities in the golf industry did you see? originally that inspired you to actually take the plunge and create Golf Genius? I can nail it to a specific moment. So by 1989, I started going on buddy golf trips. Okay. Eight, 12 of us would go on a golf trip every year. And I was always the guy organizing it. And in about 207, we we're going to Sea Island. And one of the hassles in a golf trip is putting together the pairings. Right. Okay. I got 12 guys. We're going to play six rounds of golf. Who plays with who in each round? So that after six rounds, we kind of all played with everyone else about the same number of times. And Colin isn't complained to me at the end. You know, I, I played with Harry five times and you know, I don't like Harry. And then I play with you at all. And the nature of a golf trip is you play golf and you have dinner. And a large group of them not sitting next to you, I probably don't <laughs> talk to you. So I could literally be on Sunday. It's Colin. Dude, I didn't, I didn't get a chance to talk to you at all. How's your family? We we're going to Sea Island, and my wife and I were trying to do these pairings. And you do round one, this is who plays with whom. You build a little table of who's playing with whom, right, and how many times. And throwing away and throwing it away. This is going on for about an hour, and I looked up at Linda, and I said, this is a scheduling problem. This is an integer programming problem. I know how to solve this problem. My PhD is from the Wharton School, a very technical background, right. and we called it decision sciences back then, but it was a combination of operations research and computer science and artificial intelligence. But it was certainly involved in what we would call operations, linear programming, mathematical programming, stuff like that. And so I realized, hey, this is, this is an integer programming problem. And we went off to Sea Island. I kind of put it in the back of my mind. The next year, it's like, God, this is a pain in the neck. I know how to solve this problem. So it started with that. And then I realized, well, scheduling in of itself wasn't a product. So we added tournaments and photography and accounting and initially entered the market with group golf trips. And then it grew from there. Now, I'm assuming that you took, even before this existed, that no one talked about lean startup methodologies back in those days, but it sounds like you applied that to what you were doing. Yeah. So with that, I'd like to hear, what was your first steps to get a product into market and test this to see if there was fit and see if actually people wanted this, what you were experiencing personally as a pain point? That's a great question. Just to expand on it a little bit. So by 2009, I had been fortunate for my company and some endeavors. I was investing in other companies and was really wondering like, well, how real is this cloud stuff? You hear about cloud and Amazon, like how real is it? I'd like to build something on it and see how real it is. That was number one. Number two, I had a view that people are raising enormous amounts of money. It's like, do you really need to raise that much money? Can't you do this in a way that requires less capital? 
And I also felt that because of the technology, you could attack much smaller markets and build a very profitable business in a niche and then grow it from there. So that was sort of what I was thinking about. I had raised $20 million for SoftSwitch. I've been on lots of boards. Right. I had been in the private equity business. I saw companies raising $40, $50 million. I thought, you just dig a really deep hole. When you raise a lot of money, you dig yourself a very deep hole that you have to dig yourself out of. Sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. And you dilute your own valuation quite heavily too in some cases. It does. Yeah, exactly. So I had my own capital. I decided to start the company, hired a few people, reached back to my days at SoftSwitch. And one of my best engineers was a guy in Scotland and he joined up, totally virtual company. He's introduced some other people, a developer in Romania. The guy who was my senior VP of marketing at Lotus joined up with me, also a very passionate golfer. Right. And we built the first product in a little less than a year and introduced it at the PGA Merchandise Show in 2010. It's still a very, very nice product, but it turned out to be a very small market, hundreds of thousands of dollars per year in revenue. Although there's hundreds of thousands of golf trips, maybe we didn't do it right. You know, We weren't getting a lot of traction. It, it was good, but not great. Right. So we turned from that to say, well, what about golf leagues? You have 12 guys playing six rounds of golf in a golf league. You have 100 guys of which 60 show up in any week playing over 20 weeks. Right. So it's an even more complex scheduling problem, but all the tournament stuff, all the photography, everything applies. And so I invested some more of my own money in it. We expanded a bit and did that. And that got some more traction. So we're starting to grow the company. And that was starting to look pretty good. If I can ask you, so, so originally, were you looking at this as a, as a business to consumer play rather than a B2B play, which it really is now? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that was the transition we had to make. So it was absolutely B2C, right. which quite honestly was not where my skill set was. Right? I'd always been in large scale enterprise software. So, and I would even say today, I'm not the greatest B2C guy. So we did that and the leagues were B2C, but I said, we've now reached the point we understand the needs of golf clubs, public courses and resorts. That's a B2B business. That's a business I understand. So in early 14, I hired a fellow who was the head pro at a local country club and said, go sell, <laughs> go find some clubs. And that's a very close knit community, the golf pros. So we got traction in Philadelphia quite quickly. Nick is still the vice president of sales, doing a fantastic job. We hired some other PGA professionals to help us in sales. And then we went to the USGA and said, hey, look, we think we have a product that really could be very helpful to you. And that was transformative. I mean, the, the USGA relationship allowed us to get scale very, very quickly and solve a problem that they had been struggling with for some time. Got it. So could you elaborate for our listeners what the service offering is that Golf Genius provides? Why don't you actually give the elevator pitch for Golf Genius for us here? Yeah. So we service, to start with, private clubs, public courses, and resorts. And if I take private clubs, a country club, there's recreational golf. You know, I say, hey, Colin, let's go play at Marion. And we get two other guys and I get a tee time, right? It's just the four of us play. But then there's what we call organized golf. Right. And that breaks down into member events, like your member guest, your member member stag days. Ligs, although country clubs don't call them leagues. They virtually all have a ladies nine holers, ladies 18 holers, men's golf association, women's golf association, nine and dine and things like that. And then outings. Most clubs uh, lease out their club on Monday for outings, both corporate and charity as a way to subsidize dues. So we provide the software for those member events, leagues and outings. And our tagline, call it, which is, just happens to be true, is less work, more fun, more revenue. So less work for the golf pro. These events can be very complex to set up. 
They really can't. It's hard stuff. And so to make it less work for the golf pro, click a few buttons and get that member guest set up with 12 flights of six golfers playing nine five-hole matches with all sorts of crazy point systems. Print the scorecards, print the card signs, print the starter sheets. And then there's more fun. When I came into the market, there were some products out there that just focused on the pro shop, make the pro shop more efficient. But as a country club member, I said, well, wait a minute, it's, it's really about the member experience. How do we improve the member experience through things like live scoring, TV leaderboards and things like that? Right. So it's more fun for the golfers because we provide live scoring. So we have free mobile apps that people download. They literally click in a six-digit code that's on their scorecard and they can enter scores and look at leaderboards and they love it. So if there's a member guest going on and you're, or you're having a Ryder Cup, you can just immediately see what the leaderboards look like. One of the powerful parts about our product is you get a multiple tournaments in a round and tournaments over multiple rounds. So you could say we're having best two balls of foursome, but we're also doing low gross and low net by flight and skins, right? Or in aggregate, we're doing uh, your best score over four rounds. If it's a four round trip, we'll drop your worst score. So it's a lot of fun for the golfer. A lot of fun, but I guess on the back end, though, it sounds like just you describing all those combinations and permutations for the ones that are organizing that, that sounds like an absolute nightmare trying to do it the old school way. I will say this, having been in the enterprise software space for, for literally 40 years, and people laugh at me, but it's true. This is the hardest technical problem I've ever tackled because it's very unstructured for the reason you say. If you look at an e-commerce system, right? It's like, okay, we have a catalog. You select things from the catalog. They go in the cart. You go to checkout. You have a payment process. It's very structured. It's very transactional. Right. In our business, neither the scheduling, the scheduling is very complex. Someone doesn't realize that when they click create schedule, we literally invoke a scheduling program that I wrote that goes off on 10 huge Amazon servers and may generate a very organized way and, and rank 50 million different possible schedules, literally, and pick the best one. Now, they shouldn't care and they don't care. It comes back and says, here's the best possible pairings. And then the tournaments, there's just billions of combinations of how you run tournaments. So it's technically very complex and it has to scale. I mean, we have on a Saturday in the summer, 120,000 rounds of golf going on around the world. Scores are being beamed up all over the world, leaderboards computed and transmitted back to these phones for users to see. But to finish the loop, the really powerful part of the product, besides less work and more fun, is more revenue more revenue for the operator. Because when people have outings, which they almost all do, they can now have an offer to charge more money, let's say another 10 or $20 per player to provide live scoring and live TV leaderboards and websites, all of which we do. And if it's a charity outing, we allow that charity to raise a lot more money I'm sure you get invitations all the time. Come participate in our charity outing, $4,000, click here, bring a foursome to play golf, and have eight for dinner, and we'll put your logo on one of the tees. Thank you very much. Right. In our case, it's, no, your primary sponsor can literally have content between each hole in the live scoring so they can tell a story as the golfers go from hole to hole. They have content on the TV leaderboard, unlimited content besides the scores, and on the website. Monday's our second busiest day after Saturday because they're doing all these outings. The value proposition to a club is less work, more fun, more revenue. Private courses, it's member events, leagues, and outings. Public courses don't have member events, but they have lots of leagues. And I think they should do even more. Leagues is the way to fill the T-sheet. Most of these leagues are 4 p.m., 9 and 9. Mm -hmm. 4 p.m. shotgun. You're filling a T-sheet that would otherwise be pretty empty. 
and you're frankly, in many of these leagues, you're making as much money on the food and beverage after the nine holes as you are in the green space. Agreed. So it's a very compelling offer. And we have a base product that all USGA clubs get as part of their handicapping fee that does not include live scoring and websites and registration and payments. But all those clubs can then upgrade to our premium product, which does have that. And one important point, Colin, I made the decision early on to really go for volume and to keep the price point relatively low compared to other software in a golf club. So today, for a club that has 18 or 36 holes, our all-in, unlimited-use annual subscription is $2,500. Now, that same club is paying probably eight or $9,000 to have its website, twelve dollars or $13,000 to have its accounting system, right. and maybe $7,000 for its tee time system, and anywhere from ten dollars to $20,000 for handicapping. So we're very, very inexpensive relative to the software in a club. And they did that intentionally to get volume very quickly. To expand on that, so I want to talk about with your revenue model, do you have multiple streams of revenue or is it solely through a subscription based to the clubs itself? It's 95% subscription. Well, so to back up, so our relationship with the USGA, the USGA pays us an annual fee for the right to distribute this base product to all of their clubs. So if you're a club... By virtue of paying your handicapping fee, which can be anywhere from 18 to say $40 per golfer, you get this tournament software, the basic edition. It's called USGA Tournament Management Club. Then it meets the needs of the less work, the work in the pro shop. So that's one source of revenue. And then the major source of revenue is upgrading these clubs to our premium offer. And then we do events. A good example, the the PGA of America just ran the Jones Cup. The Jones Cup is a very important event where all of the colleges that have PGM programs send a team. And they wanted us to do all, it's rather complex scoring, do all the live scoring, have a couple people down there. We have a very, very small, what I'll call events business. The way I like to describe our software, we provide the bus. We want you to provide the bus driver. We're a software platform. Okay. Bus drivers are expensive right? They're called people. You got to pay them. They get sick. You got to feed them. There's all sorts of problems with people. Them. Oh, them, right? When I started this company, I said my goal was to have more servers than employees. Got it. And it's not true anymore. We have more employees than servers. (laughs) But so our events business is not something that we aggressively go after. We do it as an accommodation. So I got a really important event here. I just want you there to help. As you know, in the cloud-based software, you measure what's called ARR annual recurring revenue. Got it. And 99% of our revenue is annual recurring. Right. Wow. That's that's what you want. That yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to talk, drill down into a couple other things. You put so much out there, really good stuff that I just want to grab a few of them and, and expand on them here, Mike. And one of them is talking about cloud-based software seen when you launched the PGA show in 2010 and where cloud-based computing is now, eight years later, you obviously have this ability to place some bets on what the future will hold and where things are going as far as trends. So with that, how have you progressed or how have you iterated over the last couple of years with versions of Golf Genius of, let's say, compared to what you launched early on, the version that you have eight years later? So I'm curious to hear that and about the culture of creativity and innovation and entrepreneurship that you have within Golf Genius. Those are great questions. So the product today has almost nothing to do with what we had in 2010 when we introduced this product for Buddy Golf Trips. Right. Today, it's a large product. Running golf events, they're complex. And we also 
service the associations. I mean, in every country, there's state and regional golf associations, and their needs are quite different. Their tournaments are very simple. These are golf professionals. They're playing their own ball from the back tee at scratch. The complexity at the association level is membership programs and registration and payments and refund programs, very large fields that you have to put out in waves. And so the needs are very different. So the product matures. We do about eight releases a year with major new features, and we're constantly adding features in response to customer requests. So I've always said that in a software company, the, the product management positions, the gearbox, getting requirements from customers and getting capabilities from development and figuring out what's easy to do and has a lot of benefit and what's hard to do and has little benefit and all that sort of stuff. So we've always been very focused on product management. We do that in the States. Our development team is entirely in Romania, been in Romania from day one. The people who run that have been with me. Well, the guy who runs it was the first employee in the company. He was a kid at the time. There's 24 people over there, very little turnover. So very, very deep knowledge of golf. What people will say about us is, Mike, you know software and you know golf. We can find people who know software. We can find people who know golf. But it's very, very hard to find people who know software and golf. It's a very complex area. So our process is to really listen to our customers, have your classic product management function. We use a product called AHA that lots of people use for tracking requirements. And we come out with new releases. But one of the rules we have is that every time you add a feature, you're increasing complexity. It's another choice a user has to make. Even if it's to say, I'm not sure what that is, but I don't need that. We used to have conservation of mass and energy. I call it conservation of complexity. Yes. If we're adding complexity, we have to be taking out complexity. We have to be constantly working on the user experience to reduce complexity, to take things out. Right. My view, and I think you would agree with it, on almost every website, the hard part in a website is finding what you want to do. Once you have found it, it's pretty easy. But think about how hard it can be sometimes in a website to find, hey, where do I change my password? (laughs) You would think by now you could go to the top right and you would see something about my account and it would have password. But it doesn't. It's all over the place. So I spend a lot of time looking at other products and say, well, how do they manage complexity? How do they simplify things? When I was at IBM, Lou Gerson used to say, we have no problem stealing other people's good ideas, right? That's the nature of the industry. And so we're constantly looking at other people's features and how they do things and how we can improve it. The other thing I would say that's helped the company incredibly, and I can give you an example, we do net promoter score testing every day. We use a product called Ask Nicely for NPS. I mean, we probably sit on top of 25 different software products. That's the beauty of the industry today. You don't have to build all this stuff. We do NPS surveys every day like most people do. After you're a customer for two months, we start testing you every six months. All of those things come up into a Slack channel. Oh, there's another product we use, right? Slack channel. I look at every single one of them every single day. Right. It's a tab right in my browser. And about a year ago, there was a whole set of responses about complexity. And my conclusion from it was, you guys make the hard stuff really, really easy. And you make the easy stuff really hard. And that's not unusual for software product, right? I'm going to have my model and I'm going to stick you through it, what you want or not. And I said, you know what? We spend our lives thinking about that multi-round complex tournament with all sorts of different tournaments. I said, how many of our events are one round on one course? It's just we're going to have one round of golf on one course. It's like best two balls of force. Right. Turned out, I think 73% of our events were one round on one course. Really? Yeah. Not surprising, right? 
So we built something called Quick Event. Ding, 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 right? Yeah. And at any time, the way our developers describe it, oh, it's, there's an exit lane. Oh, it's a little, you need more than that? You exit off of Quick Event and you're in the city, right? You can do whatever you want. And so there's a perfect example of just listening to your customers, not explaining to them why it's complicated, but saying, you know, you're right. How do we simplify it? And I think that's the challenge that companies face as they grow and add more functionality. By definition, the site gets more complex and you then have to attack it with other tools that simplify things for people and pay attention to the requirements. The other thing I would say that I've learned in this business, I was talking to someone today. I said, there's a difference between building software and building software product. Right. Software products have to scale. If you want to make money, there has to be a premium on customer self-sufficiency. Right. And we all rather do it ourselves, right? There's a reason we like to walk up to the ATM instead of going into the teller. I'll use this as an example. We use a product called Superhero for our knowledge base. Oh, there's another product. We have one PGA professional whose full-time job is managing our knowledge base. We use Intercom for support and chat. We literally have a 90% deflection rate. So when someone clicks the help button, we recommend some articles based on what page they're on. So it's context sensitive help. They can type anything they want in the search bar and find articles. And only 10% of the time does that user say, nope, I need to contact someone. You think about that. When you have a ticket, that has cost. We know exactly what it costs to process a ticket. I'll tell you down to the penny. We know what that cost is. Well, we're only servicing 10% of what it could be. That's what a software product is about. You know, I was joking around with someone. I said, we've reached the point where you can go to Google and search Golf Genius member guest. Not into Golf Genius, but into Google. Right. And there's so much activity, it's going to drive you right down to our knowledge base. I'm sure you're the same as most people. If you have a problem in Excel, you don't even go to Excel help. You just go to the Google bar and say Excel pivot table. And you're going to get content from lots of people. The other thing about the cloud that I just love is the elasticity, the scalability. Right. On a Saturday, we will do 120,000 rounds of golf, and I can just watch the servers step up over time. That automatically adds servers and takes them down. So our cost is purely at the margin. Absolutely. Right. We're provisioning servers as demand goes up during the day. It'll peak around 2 or 3 o'clock Eastern time and then starts to level off. And so our cloud infrastructure costs, they're not all that much. It's real money, but it's not all that much. Right. And that price keeps coming down. It sounds to me the term elegant simplicity is something that you really embrace with the way you move forward with user experience design. The user interface is critical to the evolution and the delivery of Golf Genius here. It sounds like you've got tons of tools, but without having that backdrop of that user experience and, and paying attention to that frictionless experience for the people that are using it, it wouldn't work. Yeah, I still think we have a long way to go in simplifying the user experience. We have some ideas that we're implementing right now. Boy, it's complicated. In fact, if you look at our NPS scores, I show them to people. If you look at a particular customer, it'll start at some level, it'll go down, and then it keeps going up. That is, as they get more experience, they love the product. The Gartner Group often refers to the trough of disillusionment, right? This fantastic new technology, and then, oh, my God, yeah, this is painful, and then it starts to grow, and we see that. Right. And so we need to get people through that trough of disillusionment, right, <laughs> and using the product. And we all have moments of frustration with products. There's no question about it. And <laughs> so I would say our challenge right now is doing that because if you think about where we are in the market, no one's going to come compete with us head on. 
Nine women cannot have a baby in one month. I love that one. Right? Even if you gave someone everything we have right now, it would take them an enormous amount of time to rebuild it because we've had the twists and turns of 10 years. If I wanted to compete in this industry, I would say, well, why don't I slice off the easy part? I'm going to go to that pyramid and say, yeah, golf genius is great, but you know, maybe you just need this simple little thing. I call it coming up your tailpipe, right? Right. Here's a simple little thing. And that's the classic innovator's dilemma. All right. I mean, it's one of the best books in the industry for any entrepreneur. I was just going to mention that. You, you beat yeah, me to yeah. that with Clayton Christensen. Yeah, what- with Christensen, it comes up your tailpipe. Someone solves a simpler problem for a smaller market that you're not interested in, and then they grow from there. So I constantly think about how do we fend those guys off? They're not there yet, but how do we fend off that would-be competitor who's going to say, yeah, maybe you don't need all that stuff that Golf Genius has. I find it intellectually incredibly stimulating, and I'm still very much involved in the product to say, how do you make this simpler? How do you respond to things? And so I'm very attentive when I use other software products. I use an example of Adobe Acrobat. I get documents all the time that come up in Acrobat and I need to sign them. Digital signature. I have no idea where to find sign the document in the menu bar, but they have a little thing on the right with search and I type D-I-G-I, digital signature, click, yes, right? So you see that instead of the traditional menu structure that we still have to some extent, and a lot of products do, you just let users jump in. Give me a sense of what you want to do and I'm going to take you there. It's all about navigation. It's how do you help someone navigate to what they want to do very quickly? And one of the things we find all the time is it takes too many clicks to do this. Can't you put this here? I mean, a very simple example is I'm entering scores and someone comes up their scorecard and we had their handicap wrong. He's not an 18, he's a 14. Well, right now, Golf Genius, I have to get out of enter scores and go to that golfer and go to the golfer's profile and change his handicap. Why can't I just write on enter scores, be able to put in a different handicap? Yes. That's a perfectly legitimate request. Today, you can do that, but you're not going to find that on your own. You have to listen to the customers very carefully and they usually have very good ideas. Quickly, just sticking with the customers and their feedback, it's interesting when you mentioned the innovator's dilemma, because one of the things Christensen talks about is the customer is not always right. And your experience, heavy experience in the software development industry, I don't know if you go with your gut or the experience or a combination thereof, Mike, but I guess sometimes you have to get out in front of things and like, this is something that the customer might need. And we're going to try this and test this to validate it rather than always listening to what they want. Because you said you may end up creating something that's so unruly with too many features or cumbersome and clunk that it doesn't work. Yeah. So how do you reconcile that? Yeah. Let me reinforce your statement. So one of the arrows in my back in the early days of soft switch, where we had all these mail systems communicating, our customer said to us, you need to have a fax server. So instead of emailing this to call and I can fax it to this number, it's back in the days of fax. And I bought a company. I bought a company that was a fax server. Right. Went back to all those customers and I went, ah, you know, we were only kidding. (laughs) Really? I just bought this company. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it was a kind of, it would be nice to have, but. And so one of the questions, and you raise a good point. The question you have to ask for every customer request, is this something unique to this customer? Or is this customer expressing a need that would be widespread or does this customer have a unique need? But if I just generalize it a little bit, it would meet the needs of many customers. The worst thing you'd put into any software product, and we all live it, is when you look in the code and there's, if customer equals X, do this. It's the death of you. You end up with this mishmash of spaghetti code. And we try to avoid it. I won't say you'll never find that in our code because you will every once in a while. Right. You look at these requirements and you really have to say, is this a, I call it, is it worth the UI? 
if you add a feature, you have to expose it in somehow. Is it just going to complicate the UI for everybody else? Or how do you generalize it in a way? At IBM, there's a term called no plan. We have no plan to do that. I don't want to break your heart. We, we have no plan to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you we'll get back to you. I'm not going to tell you we're looking into it. Like, read my lips. We're not doing that, right? You're not reading between the lines. Just read the lines. That's what we're telling you. Yeah, exactly. And they would say, no plan. Who was the company? Mint. Remember Mint? They were onto this thing of just say no. Their point was, don't let it get bloated. Don't add these things to the periphery that help 5% of your customers. Keep it lean and mean. And I think that's an extreme. Now, in their case, it was a consumer business for the people who were nowhere near needing QuickBooks. Just a very simple aggregation. Go out and aggregate all your accounts. In our case, we tend to listen to the customers, as I say, sift it out. Because I say to people, look, all the good ideas for this product, we implemented all our good ideas eight years ago. You will never be as smart as all of your customers put together. It ain't going to happen. And so you have to listen to them, but you raise an extremely good point. There was a fellow who ran our UK operations in Soswitz, and I loved his line. He said, Mike, you should be customer driven, but not driven by your customers. And that absolutely captures it. Customers at large, you need to be driven by your customers and follow them. Right, right. But you have to be careful that you're not chasing the unique needs of a customer because sometimes customers, it's not that they're bad people. They, I want this, I want this, I want this. What they're effectively saying is I want a custom product at a commercial off-the-shelf price. Like it, yeah. And work that way. Well, one thing I would say is we never do fee-for-service. We never say, well, you know, that's a very unique need, Mr. Customer. We're going to charge you X to do it. Some people do that. It's not a bad model. It's just like, I don't even want to encourage that. It's either you have a need that's general enough that we're going to implement it for all of our customers, or we're not going to implement it. And our customers kind of accept that. So you're telling me that you shouldn't design a car that has 12 wheels because some customer is trying to convince you it'll go three times faster and it'll be three times more awesome? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Cars are a good example of where there's a huge struggle on the UI in the automobile today. And it's far more serious than my situation because if they get distracted on that UI, they're going to run somebody over. I bought a Mercedes for the first time because I was very focused on safety. I'm going to buy a car with safety, did my research. And I have to say, I have been extraordinarily impressed at the engineering and at their UI, how they get it all there and how you can manage your way through it. There's a few things they could do differently, but they've obviously put an enormous amount into it. And the other thing I would say, it's an interesting lesson for me, and it's not quite related to what we have, but I was in a board meeting the other day and someone was saying, What we're doing, it's just going to be really disruptive. And I said, look, give you the minority opinion here. Journalists love disruptive. They love to write about disruptive stuff. Customers want incremental improvement. Now, there are exceptions. Uber was truly disruptive. But Lotus 1, 2, 3 was truly disruptive. Maybe I could count 10 products that were so disruptive that they got traction immediately. One of the things I'd say about Mercedes is I had an opportunity a year ago. I bid on some charity option to drive a Tesla for a day. So I bought a Tesla self-driving. I got to tell you something. At my age, I'm not ready for (laughs) self-driving. Yeah. Then I get this Mercedes and I sort of chuckle because if you take the Mercedes and you put it on adaptive cruise control, it just goes. And oh, by the way, it stays in the lane and you can take your hands off the steering wheel. It doesn't follow your directions to turn left. So the demographic of Mercedes is probably older people. We're going to guide those people and slowly pull them in to automated driving as opposed to this disruptive experience. I just chuckle because I can see they're just doing more and more things to ease you into it as opposed to shoving it down your throat. 
Sounds like you're a big fan of what I'm going to call functional elegance when it comes to design and experience. Absolutely. You know, when I was 21 years old and my first job at the University of Pennsylvania, I'll never forget a guy said to me, he said, Mike, elegance is a simple solution to a complex problem not a complex solution to a complex problem. Yep. And I would relate that to Colin Powell's famous quote, great leaders always simplify. Yes. Distill it down, distill it down, distill it down. There's the old joke in the academic world. I didn't have time to write a two-page memo, so I wrote a 20-page memo. <laughs> right? Exactly. And I, I really believe that. I think you have to work really, really hard at distilling something down to its essence and going through each use case and saying, what are the use cases? What's in common? What's different? And then design the user experience around that. It's fascinating stuff. It's like art. When you see something very, very well designed, I'll use a good example. Someone was saying at the same board meeting, first mover advantage. I said, I don't believe in first mover advantage. I see very few cases of first mover advantage. First movers are the guys with the arrows in their back, right? That's right. Wizzacalc did not have first mover advantage. It got run over by <laughs> Lotus 1, 2, 3. Google was not the first search engine. I often quiz people. What was the first engine? It was Yahoo. What was the second? It was Alta Vista. Then along came Google. And so sometimes you just have to learn from what other people are doing and then distill down what the market really needs. Yeah. And those fast followers are the ones that come over the top there. And you can ask Netscape how things are working out for them these days too, right? Yeah. And that term you just used, Colin, fast follower is exactly the right term to use. Is to see it and then be able to move very quickly. If it took us, and I would say this to any software developer, it took us 10 years to get to where we are. It sure as hell shouldn't take you 10 years, but it's not going to take you 10 minutes. You ought to be able to zig and zag a little more than we did and avoid some of the pitfalls, but it's probably going to take you three or four years with a decent sized team to build what we have. Right. And having that 10 years of experience, you touched on this earlier, Mike, talking about, well, the competition to get to where you are now with everything that you've built and the, uh, and the traction that you have and you're past the tipping point now leads me to the next thing I wanted to talk about here. And I mentor entrepreneurs and startups. And one thing I talk to them about is I use this phrase, if, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And that brings me to partnerships. And it sounds like one of the things that you are creating to scale up but also as a barrier to entry is some of the partnerships you have. And I just saw announced when you have a golf channel and NBC sport group. So why don't you tell us a bit about that strategic partnership? That sounds very exciting. Yeah. So what I love about our product is what we do for one customer helps us with other customers. So golf channel three years ago, we started talking about taking over the golf channel amateur tour, which is this very large and complex tour. They run for really good golfers who want a tour experience. I said to them, we don't have what you need today. Right. We could build it, but it's going to cost X. And we jointly agreed on a risk-adjusted basis. Why would I do that? I got something that works. Well, three years go by, and then they came back, and we said, we have exactly what you need. And so we actually rolled that out in October 1st, take over the amateur tour. That original B2C product, that golf trip product, where we weren't doing very good B2C marketing, and said, let's bundle that into a new Golf Advisor product. Golf Channel has a content site called Golf Advisor they're building out with a subscription service. Right. And we white-labeled it for them, and it's now part of a larger product offering, and it just came out. We'll see how it does. And we've done some other things with them. So I'll give you a perfect example. One of the things that we had to do for Golf Channel was to support the Fire Stick, the Amazon Fire Stick, because with the Amazon Fire Stick, you can download your own app into the Fire Stick. And therefore, you can, for example, display leaderboards on a TV without having to connect a PC to it. 
you load up this Fire Stick, you download the Golf Genius app from the Amazon store and from our mobile app, you say, fling the round three leaderboard to that TV and fling the round two leaderboard to that TV. And shortly you'll say, fling the photo display to that TV. It was really cool. We immediately made it part of our standard product. And within one week, one of the affiliated golf associations was tweeting a photo how they love the Fire Stick and it was hashtag lots less work. So you get this synergy between doing something for one that helps you with another. We have a very close relationship with the USGA, obviously. We have a relationship with Golf Channel. We partner with the cart people, EasyGo and Club Card, do live scoring. We have a whole set of APIs that are publicly available. I was talking to a company yesterday, a very big company, and they want to integrate with us. I said, here's the APIs. We'll help you implement them, but they're publicly available. And, and you're right. One of the things I love about this is all the little pieces of software that we sit on top of. Because we're totally virtual, we live on Zoom, Skype for collaboration, and we sit on top of all these other software products. And if we had to do all this stuff alone, it's not very productive. The analogy I use, and it takes a second, but I think it's worth it. It's like you meet someone, you say, well, what are you doing? And they say, uh, I've got a fantastic idea for a new coffee cup. Right. Really? Yeah, I, I really have a great idea for a coffee cup. Okay, well, that sounds interesting. And, and you come back two years later and you say, how's it going? And it says, well, we realized in order to have a coffee cup, you really need a saucer. And there weren't any saucers. So we spent two years building the world's greatest saucer. And you know, you can actually drink out of a saucer, right? So you lost sight. You realize in order to solve the business problem I wanted to solve, all this underlying infrastructure was missing and you go off and have to build all that infrastructure. You're out of breath and you're out of money and your investors are tired. Today, you don't have to do any of that. You can actually focus 100% of your energy on the business problem you're trying to solve. We sit on top of Amazon. We sit on top of Postgres. We're not writing database software. We sit on top of support here. We sit on top of Intercom. We sit on top of DocRaptor. You know, I could go on and on and on about the what I'll call the horizontal software that we need, but we don't have to build. That's what I love about it. 90% of our cycles are on the golf problem as opposed to, well, how do we print PDFs? How do we handle support tickets and stuff like that? It makes a huge difference. Yeah. <laughs> you can be incredibly productive. And in our particular business, our secret sauce is the domain expertise we have in golf. Right. We have, coincidentally, 24 people are PGA golf professionals, and we have 24 people in Cluj who are world-class computer scientists. Yes. Who know golf because they've been doing it forever. You bring those together, it's very, very powerful. Wow. Well, just like the term disruptive is thrown around a lot. To be honest, I don't use the D word anymore. I think it's overused now. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. But other terms that really apply to you, even though a lot of people say it now between lean and agile and responsive, your team certainly is that the way you actually work virtually. And the fact, like you said, you just build on top of existing tools and just harness the power of those that allow you to focus on the things that really add value yeah. for golf genius. It takes time. Yes. A company is is like any other organism. You can feed it at a certain rate. If you shove too much food down a baby, you have a fat baby. Yeah. And maybe you can nurture your two-year-old so he or she acts like a two-and-a-half-year-old. Right. But you can't make your two-year-old into a 16-year-old. It takes time. And in fact, one of the comments I make to people, say, what have you learned as an entrepreneur? I call it the three Ps. Passion. Yeah, everyone gets passion. Persistence. But the third P is patience. Right. 
And sadly, investors oftentimes don't have much patience. No, just the cycles and the criteria they base that on. It's like you're reading my script here. The last question I was going to ask you, Mike, and you already touched on that with your three Ps. Since you are such an experienced entrepreneur founding several companies, bringing them from the startup stage to maturity, as you've done several times, do you have any other advice for new entrepreneurs? Because we have a lot of them that listen to the program, some of them in the golf industry and some of them outside of that. So what other advice for entrepreneurs or tips or tricks or or cautionary tales could you provide for the few minutes I still have you here, Mike? Well, I guess what I would say, Colin, is it takes a lot of stamina. You need to have the stamina to sort of get through it. And the one thing I would say to a leader is there's a lot of uncertainty out there in the world. You have this team of people and they're getting a little tired. They're getting a little demoralized. Things aren't working quite right. Customers are complaining. Servers are crashing. And I often say there's a lot of uncertainty. And I say a CEO's job, I sort of think, all my employees are behind me and I'm facing the marketplace. My job is to absorb uncertainty, to absorb the uncertainty and then turn around to the employees and distill it down to, guys, look, these are the three things we need to do. But to really keep the team focused and not lose sight of what you're trying to do, because oftentimes what I find is that you're under so much pressure, you get something 90% done and you put your team on something else. And that's debilitating to people. They know they didn't put a bow in the package. They know it's going to crash. They know the UI is not clean, right? right. You put, threw them onto something else. Now, sometimes they have to be very pragmatic and say, look, we got to go do this and we'll come back. I had a, a discussion this morning with someone and I said, turnover kills you. And I really believe it. You get a certain churn rate in your company, you're toast. No one knows what the hell is going on. Half the company can't even find their way to the men's room. And I said, one of the things I've always lived by you can make anyone fail, give them all they can possibly do, then give them 5% more. Right. And when you do that and they fail, it's your fault, not their fault. And so you have to be able to say to someone, look, don't take on more than you can do. We work really hard, right? We work really hard in our company. We're 10 years into it. Now, are we working 80 hours a week every week like we did for the first year? No. We don't need to, and that's too much to ask of people. Yes. But we work a lot. I mean, I think nothing of my team in Romania. Of if I need to talk to them at one in the afternoon, I hit on Skype, and it's eight o'clock there. Either they're going to answer, or they're not. But I'm not shy about calling them. But you need vacation. You need to get away from it, and you can't just run people into the ground. And that's what I see the mistake some entrepreneurs make is there's so much pressure. It's more investor expectations than customer expectations that they just drive people into the ground. And I would really encourage people to try not to do that. That's great advice. So thank you for sharing that. So, hey, why don't we finish things up here? But before we depart here, Mike, let our listeners know where they can learn more about Golf Genius online and get more information about what you're doing. Well, thanks for the opportunity to share that. I think we, we have a really, really complete website. So www.golfgenius.com. We just rebuilt that website about nine months ago. And the one thing I would say is, I had this discussion yesterday with a marketing agency, is we have a lot of testimonials. We focus a lot on testimonials for both domestic and international customers. Our knowledge base is public, so someone can go get a hold of our knowledge base from our website, click on the help button, and I think the website does a good job of explaining our value proposition. Less work, more fun, more revenue, and, and where tradition meets technology, right? We still create all these printed materials people need, as well as all the live scoring tools that the world's moving to. Gotcha. So golfgenius.com, you can find out everything you need to know there. And I 
will also say when I was doing some background and some research on Golf Genius, I did look at your YouTube channel and saw some testimonials there from the PGA show. And it was really, really compelling. That was good stuff. So I will make a point, Mike, to make sure in the show notes that I include links to golfgenius.com and also to some of the other places such as YouTube that people can learn more about all the great things you are doing in the golf industry. Well, thank you, Colin. You are welcome. So, hey, Mike Zisman, founder and CEO of Golf Genius Software. Why don't we leave it at that? Mike, I really appreciate your time and your insights. This has been educational and engaging. So I thank you for making the effort today to be on the Mod Golf Podcast. Enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for the opportunity, Colin. You're welcome. All right. Take care. Have a good day. See you. Bye. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mike Zisman and were able to take away a couple of nuggets of entrepreneurial and leadership wisdom from his experience in the tech startup space. If you'd like to learn more about the work Mike does with Golf Genius, go to our episode show page for images and links. As promised during the interview, I'll include information about some of the books and concepts Mike referenced, including Clayton Christensen's The Innovator's Dilemma and a graphic explaining the Gardner Group's Trough of Disillusionment. I'd like to extend my gratitude and thanks to our sponsor partners, Fairway IQ, British Columbia Golf, and Nextlinks for helping make the Mod Golf podcast happen. Without their support, I wouldn't be able to bring you these stories from the golf industry's brightest innovators and influencers. Please join me next time when I sit down with Dogu Taskaran, CEO of Stambul Studios, for a fascinating conversation that tapped into his expertise in military simulator design, sports-themed video games, and immersive virtual reality environments. You'll hear us exploring how the world of virtual reality, mixed reality, and augmented reality will impact and influence the future of golf entertainment experiences and game performance improvement. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more of our innovation stories on previous episodes at www.mod.golf or search Mod Golf Podcast on iTunes. And please rate, review, and subscribe to the show while you're there. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks so much for joining me this week. Bye for now.